Hi, and welcome to Can We Talk For Real. We have had a little bit of technical problems, so I apologize to anyone who's been trying to get through. Uh, I'm Michelle, and Terry Boy may be joining us later on. Uh, first of all, I want to, anyone who is calling in to hear about the marriage show, our guest who we had scheduled, uh, Imani Baskin, was hospitalized. And if you've been following us, we've been trying to keep you up to date on her well-being. She's still in the hospital. She's in ICU but hopes to go to a regular room shortly. So please continue to keep her in your thoughts and prayers. And um, we will have that show on marriage and hearing uh, Imani's insights, not only from her work with women, healing women, but as a newlywed in the very near future. Tonight, what we've been talking about again and again as related to this upcoming election and every time we talk about people voting, we've been talking about uh, the Supreme Court and how important your vote is, in this, particularly in this presidential year, because it can affect the Supreme Court. With us tonight to talk about a couple of the recent rulings that happened on Monday, which uh, is um, Marissa Kovach of the ACLU. And she is, uh, has been working with the ACLU since 2008. Then shortly afterwards, we'll find that you'll be, we'll be joined by a Can We Talk For Real family member, Kim Hunt, who is coming to us from a panel discussion uh, talking about the LGBTQ issues and the Supreme Court. So let's talk a little bit about this. What happened Monday, there were three rulings. One had to do with gun rights, another had to do with corruption, and the third had to do with abortion. The gun rights issue had um, talked about people who were had misdemeanors under domestic violence convictions, making it that they would bar them from owning firearms. This was a 6-2 ruling, and the court and the court upheld upheld the lower court. So if you've got that misdemeanor, now we all know that that's not going to uh, stop someone from getting a gun illegal, uh, illegally, but, you know, it will slow down the process. Maybe someone who is having issues and they have it, they'll be on an alert so that, um, so that when they go to purchase that, they'll say, hey, you know, we've got you, you've got this, this thing. So, you know, anything that can stop this, this out-of-control guns and, and violence will help. The other one, uh, the Supreme Court decided to vacate the conviction of a former Virginia governor on corruption charges. But the big one had to do with a ruling on abortion. And with that ruling on abortion, um, you know, in Texas, they have struck, they struck down the abortion restrictions in Texas. And, and they've been doing more and more and more where it's almost like, yeah, you can get uh, an abortion in Texas, but who's going to do it? Who's going to be able to provide it for you? I am hoping 
that our guest, Marisa, is with us. Hold on just a second. Text when you have, you know, don't we love technology? It's great when it works, but when it doesn't, you know, it drives you crazy. So I'm going to bring in now Marisa Kovach, who is with the ACLU here in Michigan. Michigan. Hi, Melissa. Marissa, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Michelle? <laughs> oh, stress. And don't you like, I mean, everything was going, I thought everything was rolling right along until, and you know, and I start preparing for the show, like giving myself like 10 minutes, and then it's like, What's happening? What's happening? What's happening? But we persevered, and here we are. So could you briefly tell us a little bit about you and how you came to be with with uh, the ACLU, and then we'll go into talking about this decision on abortion. Uh, yes. Um, so I am a field organizer at the ACLU of Michigan in our legislative department. So I um, had my time between kind of uh, – field organizing advocacy, and legislative advocacy in Lansing. Um, I've been with the ACLU for eight years now, and uh, my primary issues that I work on are voting rights and reproductive rights, um, especially reproductive rights uh, working with the Michigan legislature. That's been in my wheelhouse for about four years now. So um, I came to the ACLU because I cared about civil rights and civil liberties and uh, the the um, principles that the ACLU stands by. So can you, can you fill our listeners in on what was going on? I mean, I know I gave a, a Reader's Digest version of what was happening in Texas. And can you, like, sort of fill them in and then what happened with the Supreme Court and how that can affect attacks on women's reproductive rights across the country? Yes, definitely. So um, Monday was a huge victory for women and women's access to abortion and reproductive health care. The Supreme Court issued a very decisive um, decision there that will have implications for laws in states around the country. A little bit of context, I know you explained um, what that decision did, but um, what, for some history, because this has been this has been years in the making, is um, what Monday's decision did was really restore the promise of Roe v. Wade uh, and affirm that women have a constitutional right to abortion, and that that right isn't just theoretical; that it is actually realized. Um, over the past five years, there's been a real attack against women's access to abortion rights. States across the country have passed over 300 restrictions to women's access to abortion in state legislatures all around the country in that last five years. And that is, um, that's more restrictions to abortion that than what has passed in the past 15 years. So this is a trend. This isn't something that's just stayed in Texas. But Texas was one of the worst-case scenarios. Uh, Three years ago, Texas passed a law called House Bill 2. House Bill 2 was a bill filled with trap laws, targeted regulation of abortion providers. They're called trap laws because they single out doctors and clinics that provide abortions for medically unnecessary and onerous rules that 
don't apply to providers of any other comparable medicine. Essentially, um, they burden abortion providers with very costly regulations that have nothing to do with, that have no medical necessity behind them. And these abortion providers can't comply for reasons that have nothing to do with women's health. So they have to close their doors. So what uh, the mm. anti-choice community has done is they've attacked access to abortion rather than directly attacking a woman's right to get an abortion. They've gone after access. And if you don't have access to abortion, you can't exercise your right. So what Monday's well, decision I hear, did was... Didn't I hear that, like, that suffers some, even though abortion is safer than a colonoscopy, that they have to have more precautions, more procedures in place than like a doctor who would do a colonoscopy. Absolutely. That was one of the laws that was struck. That was that had to do with two of the laws that were struck down on Monday. Abortion is a very safe procedure. It is safer than a colonoscopy. It's safer than pregnancy. And what the two laws that were struck down, the first was a requirement that um, that banned abortion uh, by any provider who did not have admitting privileges at a local hospital within 30 miles of the facility. The other banned any abortion outside of an ambulatory surgical center, which is essentially a mini hospital. It required these um, abortion clinics to be retrofitted into mini hospitals um, and, you know, uh, extend the width of their hallways. They, they regulated what sort of curtains they had to do. These sorts of regulations that had nothing to further women's health um, in any way. And that was the the argument for the colonoscopy was brought up during oral arguments in March that there that Texas allows procedures that are much riskier than abortion to be performed in facilities that are not ambulatory surgical centers. And, you know, what was interesting was they were saying, like, well, we want to make things safe for women, you know, which which by putting in all of these safety regulations was really making it very unsafe for women. Yes. When you cut access to abortion, when you make it so hard for a woman who has decided to seek an abortion to actually obtain the care that she needs legally and safely, then that makes things dangerous. These policies that were supported by the states are not supported by leading medical groups like the American Medical Association and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And what the ruling essentially said, the precedent that said that is so important now is that when states pass laws that regulate abortion care in the name of women's health, they need to have the facts and data to support that policies actually protect women's health. They can't just rely on rhetoric anymore. So now does that mean that, does it help you? Like here, you're here in Michigan, and with these, does this help you? Does it overturn anything that's happened in Michigan, or does that just give other states some ammunition to go after restrictive laws? Uh, the ruling is definitely going to have implications for laws around this, 
um, around the country. And Michigan's one of a handful of states that actually has a law very similar to Texas. Our abortion clinics, if if a healthcare provider performs more than 100, abor- 120 abortions in a year, they have to be um, an ambulatory surgical center. So we had this law which passed in 2012 before Texas is. Um, and it's been in effect for a number of years now. We were very fortunate in that when our law passed, we lobbied very hard to get portions of it taken out that still allowed many of our clinics to keep their doors open so we didn't suffer the access problem that Texas did. However, Monday's decision will not automatically um, strike down our particular trap law but we do think it sends a really strong message to the Michigan legislature that any laws we have on the books now that can that claim to help protect women's health, if there isn't scientific proof or any sort of data that backs up those claims, those laws should be repealed. Now, one of the other things that I, I've heard, you know, on NPR is how they're talking about there are, because of these restrictive laws, and you know that maybe you won't be able to get on staff at this hospital, and maybe you won't go to, that many people, I mean, many hospitals, many medical schools aren't teaching how to do abortions, you know, and in a safe way so that women are safe. And, you know, for women, it's more than just, you know, it's not only about reproductive rights, but often, you know, they're making really life decisions on an economic level, on a social justice level. So do you think that this will maybe shake loose or or help some of these medical schools and teaching hospitals who are shying away from teaching this procedure? Do you think it will help them get a little backbone? I'm very hopeful that Monday's decision is kind of turning the page on a chapter where we've just been, you know, we've been seeing regressive policy after regressive policy passed, and we've been seeing this outright war on women's ability to access abortion and reproductive health services. So I really am hopeful that this turns some sort of a tide, but you're absolutely right that medical schools and teaching hospitals are not teaching um, medical students how to perform abortions, and that's that's another piece of the puzzle, and that's very much linked to um, hospitals are targeted by the anti-choice community and threatened to the point that they don't, they shy away from teaching the procedures, or or the stigma around it has created an environment where they're not teaching the procedures, and unfortunately what this anti-choice community has done very effectively that has really hurt reproductive rights is they've created a stigma around abortion care that has um, had reverberations around the entire medical community and has marginalized abortion care from the medical community. I mean, that's why we have abortion clinics that are have to be separate. That's why so many hospitals won't perform abortions or why you can't just go to your your physician or your your standard obstetrician gynecologist to get an abortion, you have to go to a separate clinic. So, so there's um, a lot of there's a lot of factors 
weaving through this issue. Um, and I'm hopeful that Monday is a sign that things are changing, um, certainly. When you go out and, you know, and, and you're talking and, you know, people you meet, you go into and you're looking to, to get allies or you're going in to educate people about this, you know, because some people like it's just like one thing. It's like right to life to death. We don't care, you know, no matter what the issues or what is it. What direction do you try to do? What is, you know, like, so say if, you know, you, the ACLU in Michigan ends up taking a case and and moving it forward in the courts, what what tactic are you going to do? What are you try, going to try to do? I mean, to change hearts and minds, but also to educate people as to what the issue really is, that it's more about, you know, I mean, because there is that stigma. Well, you know, if they've been more careful, you know, but then it's also like you know, they don't want to teach sex ed and, you know, like Planned Parenthood gives out birth control. They don't want to, they don't want to do all of that, but then they say, well, and even in the event of rape, you know, so it's no matter how it happens, there can be pregnancies that need to be terminated. How do you turn the tide without, you know, like always having to go to court? How do you turn the tide? You know, I think what it is is it's the stigma around it, and we need to be more open in how we talk about abortion. We can't shy away from abortion. We can't treat it like a dirty word, and we really need to be able to tell stories. I think what was what what has been so effective in the LGBT movement, you see the LGBT community, the, their rights are advancing while reproductive rights are kind of the, the clock is turning back on them. And I think it's very much because the LGBT community was able to leverage these stories and be able to, they were able to show the human side of the issue. And with the stigma surrounding abortion, it's not openly talked about. So I think it's very important that we are more open about talking about abortion and in a context of every woman's unique search, every woman's situation is unique and every person has the right to bodily autonomy and fair treatment. We know that public opinion is absolutely on our side when it comes to abortion rights. The vast majority of people believe that once a woman has decided to get an abortion, that had it's not for politicians to interfere in. She should be able to get that abortion. Um, uh, she should be able to have access and afford it and get it safely and legally with compassion and respect for her decision. Now, you know, we I often think talk about the RIF, you know, those RIFRA acts, which are, and when you look at in the medical field, so many hospitals are merging and many of them are owned by religious institutions, and they're saying they talk about using that to deny access to LGBT rights or to LGBT patients. Could that also come under, like, if you are ex-hospital and you do a bunch of mergers, you end up under the auspices of, well, let's say the Catholic Church. Can they then say, well, um, Dr. X, 
if you're going to do abortions, we're going to, you can't have privileges at our hospital. And that way, you know, sort of start to, to whittle in on um, places that are for abortion providers. Absolutely. Um, so the the prevalence of uh, mergers with hospitals across the country with Catholic-affiliated hospitals has a major impact on uh, reproductive health care and health care in the LGBT community because the Catholic hospital uh, is governed by some ethical and religious directives, which are uh, – dictated by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. The U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is not made up of medical professionals. It's made up of religious leaders who have um, no background in the medical field. So what we see is um, uh, reproductive right, reproductive health care and LGBT health care being dictated by religion, by by someone else's religion impacting their right to health care. This affects women who are admitted into Catholic hospitals who are seeking miscarriage care. We have, we've, we have, we've filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops on behalf of a woman named Tanisha Means who was admitted into a hospital in Muskegon while miscarrying and was turned away several times and not told what was happening to her and was not told mm-hmm. that at the time she was admitted that um, at 17 weeks when her water broke that she was not going to be able to um, carry her pregnancy to term. She finally went back a third time. And while waiting to be discharged again, she delivered. And she had a severe mm-hmm. infection. And this was all because she went into a Catholic hospital and because that Catholic hospital decided to follow religious doctrine instead of providing her with the health care she needs. So the ACLU believes that everyone has a right to their religious beliefs, but you cannot enforce those religious beliefs on someone else, especially when it comes to the health care that a patient is provided. So um, there, there's, definitely, there's definitely a link to, like you said, with the RIFRAs and with Catholic hospitals across the country well you know like especially like in some areas i mean and, and that's one of the things that that i've heard like in texas and in, in other places they have rural areas like there might just be one hospital in that area and if that, that hospital is that catholic hospital i mean how can how can the aclu I mean, fight that because they'd say, well, religious freedom, and we are a religious hospital, we don't have to. But if you're that one hospital, you know, in the area, I mean, how do we, you know, a human right versus their religious right? And, you know, and you always think of, like, doctors and saying, like, do no harm. And, you know, and this is what's happening but, you know, then you say, well, you know, you've got the Constitution that protects, you know, the religious freedom. So how do you, how can the ACL, you know, you say you're going to, you, you've a suit against the U.S. Um, Conference of Bishops, is it, or Catholic Conference, anyhow. How does, I mean, how do you have a leg, a dog in that fight where, you know, can't they just go like, hey, we're religion, you know, <laughs> well, institution, and shut you down, you know. Well, a... A hospital is not 
a religious institution is our argument. It is a hospital. It, it They receive mm-hmm. public funds. When someone walks into a hospital, they're not wondering whether it's a Catholic hospital or not. They're seeking health care, and they have every right to receive the health care they need, especially if it's an emergency situation. And at they, so at the very least, they deserve to receive emergency medical care, and they deserve the right to be told what is happening to them, to have informed consent. Um, Certainly, we support individuals' right to practice their religion, but a a hospital is a business, and they receive public funds. And especially when we're talking about rural areas or in the case of Tanisha Means, she went into the only hospital in her county. Mm-hmm. So there's an access issue there too. So it's mm-hmm. they're providing medical care. They're not they're not a church. It's just, you know, and and, and it just sort of seems to me like, okay, once you go into business, okay, once you know, it's like one thing you can have your church, okay, and you can you can say that, you know, I don't have to go to your church. I can go to the church down the road. You know, I can go to the temple yeah. down the road. But once you go into business, you know, it's like step into business, so you have to operate by by business rules. And so hospitals, it's about saving lives and providing health care. And I remember reading about that case, and I was just, like, astounded. Like, how could they in good conscience, I tell this woman, you know, how could, you know, how could, you know, I mean, you're supposed to check that at the door and come in here and, and like they say, do no harm. And it was just like amazing to me that, you know, that they could do that not once, not twice. I mean, it was like three times and not, not tell her. Yes, it's it's absolutely horrible, and we know that it's happening to other women across the country, and it's going to continue to happen because the Catholic Catholic healthcare industry is huge. They now account for one in six hospital beds across the country. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, are there? You know, we keep hearing, you know, in the in the election. And, you know, we keep hearing the one saying, we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And, you know, on one team, (laughs) the red team, you know, know, that's part of, you know, this, oh, we're going to, you know, their right to life to death. They're going to to restrict abortion. They're going to try to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. They're going to get rid of affordable care. What else is in the pipe that, that might end up, before the Supreme Court, where even though we got this victory, there's another case that that might be working its way up that we need to be aware of. You know, I'm really not sure of one right now. Um, The Supreme Court has taken um, on the cases that it's going to take for the next year. And Mm -hmm. uh, just yesterday, they actually denied two cases on uh, abortion rights for moving forward in the Supreme Court. Now, both of those decisions, um, both of those cases that they denied had good decisions in uh, in the circuit court. So essentially what that was was a nod by the Supreme Court that these uh, decisions by the lower courts 
that were upholding abortion rights, they gave a nod to those decisions. So even though Monday was a big victory, there were two other victories yesterday too. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think right now we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to what happened on Monday. But as far as what's reverberating up into the courts, um, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, Monday sent a very strong message to the anti-choice community that women, that we have a court that upholds women's right to abortion care. Um, and when, so, oh, I want to be optimistic right now. And um, I think right now I'm, I'm not aware of any major cases that are bubbling up that could challenge that right. Mm-hmm. Well, as we look at, you know, I mean, and we know that it is just like unreal that they won't um, let President Obama's uh, hand, you know, selection for Supreme Court even get a hearing. But we know, that again, how important this election is. So let's say basically, you know, best case scenario, and it goes towards the, the blue team. And say that there's even up to like possibly even three Supreme Court justices who might be reappoint, who might retire, anything could happen. And, you know, at that at that um, instance, who knows how many, because, you know, we didn't expect to have this opening. So if it goes that way, do you think that with these rulings that, you know, it might continue to play out in the states, but really then we might be starting to put the, na- the nails in the coffin? Yes, that is what I'm very optimistic about because Monday's decision set a precedent that when states pass these laws, they need to be able to back them up with science. They can't just rely on political rhetoric right now and their lies. So I do hope that that has created a precedent around the country for uh, what states can do and has given us a tool to challenge any future laws the states pass that are not grounded in medical, you know, medical science um, and give us a tool to challenge those. Um, I, I, you are right, definitely, about the Supreme, Court decision, the Supreme Court in whatever way it goes. The next president could have the power to kind of decide where the Supreme Court is for the for next generation and where it lies um, in whether it's going to be a court that wants to uphold and expand civil rights and civil liberties for all people in this country, or if it wants to be a regressive court that um, kind of turns back the clock. Yeah. And I think that, you know, and um, – because if you look, this was a 5-3 vote, and, you know, and, and if it had been um, a full one, uh, ideally it would have been a 5-4, it still would have come out the same way. But it's so important because as you look at, like I said, you change three votes, that's really significant. And, you know, tomorrow isn't promised to anybody, so it could be even more than that. Um, Marissa, I want to thank you for being with us, and, you know, uh, you are more than welcome to stay on because I think at least to even, even you know, jump in if you want to, but even to listen, because coming on right now, right getting right fresh off a of panel, it's talking about 
um, the LGBT community and the Supreme Court and things that have mattered in it is one of our rock stars uh, and very good friend and Can We Talk Real Family, uh, Kim Hunt, who many people know from her years with the Affinity Community Service, and now she's the executive director of Pride Action Tank at AIDS Foundation of Chicago. Kim, hi, how are you? Hey, how are you doing? <laughs> okay, Kim, we have on the line um, Marissa Kovach. She's with the ACLU, and she was just talking about the abortion ruling. I mean, hey, I know you must be like um, uh, Marissa, Kim, Kim, Marissa. You, know. um, you, you must be. I mean, can you tell us? Okay, tell us about this panel tonight. Sure, you just um, and, you, and you may hear a little noise because uh, things are still wrapping up. Um, it was a, a panel that was produced by this wonderful organization here called the Le- Legacy Project, and it is an organization that is all about LGBTQ history. One of the things that they've done is created these uh, plaques on uh, some of the features along Halstead, which is called Boys Town here, uh, that commemorate uh, LGBTQ folks in history, and they've just created this huge legacy wall that is mobile and here at the center on Halstead. And the panel today um, had the panelists, I should say, were Camilla Taylor, who is from the Lambda Legal, um, uh, Lambda Legal Defense, amazing uh, lawyer who has helped uh, us get some of the marriage equality wins that we're enjoying right now. Um, Victor Salvo, who is executive director of the Legacy Walk. Uh, John D'Amelio, a very noted uh, LGBT historian. And Tracy Bain, who is uh, publisher of the Windy City Times, uh, one of the few uh, LGBT weeklies left in the country, uh, which is right here in Chicago. And we covered six cases um, that are significant in LGBT history and uh, followed by a, a wonderful uh, series of questions from from the audience. Um, and I can, I don't know, do you want me to run through like a quick summary of each of these um, oh, please, cases? Please, please so, do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first one was One Ink, which is a magazine, uh, previously a magazine, versus uh, Olison. This is a 1958 case. And the case had a a really profound impact on early activism in the LGBT community, and it allowed basically the dissemination of LGBT political organizing materials to actually go through the mail system. Um, There had been a previous lower court court case that had um, uh, labeled this information incendiary and uh, illegal, uh, and the Supreme Court changed that. And and I want to add a cap, caveat here. I am not a lawyer. <laughs> oh, I learned a lot tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The next case was uh, Bowers v. Hardwick uh, in 1986. And this case essentially made uh, gay sex an indefensible um basically legally indefensible. And it was really a catalyst for the LGBT community 
just as AIDS was really coming into the picture, because people, the language in the uh, majority um, opinion was just so bad and uh, just really labeled gay people as deviants and, um, you know, not full human beings and um, really angered the LGBT community in such a way that we had the first march on Washington for the LGBT community in 87. Um, There were protests around the country, and it really um, made folks uh, more politically active. Um, The next, so that was a defeat for us. But it wasn't a defeat in the sense that we, it was a catalyst for our activism. The next case was Walmer uh, v. Evans, and this case was really, really critical because what was being looked at was the ability of um, uh, uh, the uh, mayor or governor of Texas, he was the one named in the in the case, but the Texas legislature to essentially wipe out all of the gay rights ordinances in in the country by saying that they were illegal there in Texas. If that case had not gone our way, I mean, it would have just changed everything for us because at the time there was no constitutional argument for our legitimacy. And the only thing we had were these, like, city ordinances across the country that included sexual orientation as a protected class. Um, and fortunately, the Supreme Court said um, we cannot wipe out these ordinances, essentially, and um, we were able to have uh, those local protections. Uh, the third or fourth case that we looked at was Lawrence v. Texas, um, ruled in 2003, and this was a sodomy case. And uh, interestingly enough, Chicago was the first uh, city to uh, wipe its sodomy laws off the books, and that happened in 1961. Um, but they were still present in a lot of other city and state uh, laws. And um, in this case in 2003, uh, I'm looking at my notes here, reversed the, the loss that we had in that hardwood case that I mentioned above that uh, made mm-hmm. sex, gay sex legally indefensible and essentially um, argued the right of privacy for uh, us and others uh, and had ramifications in, um, for other movements as well um, because our privacy was respected. And then the last two we looked at were more recent cases, the Windsor case in 2013 and the Obergefell case in 2015. And these essentially combined uh, made marriage equality the law of the land. So those were the cases that we walked through. It was a very exciting and riveting discussion uh, like I said, I learned a lot, not being a lawyer, but um, as an advocate, you know, um, kind of dealing with the, the, the after effects of uh, some of these cases, it was really nice to go back to the source and find out what they were all about. Do you think that, you know, well, how important was it to have this conversation? Because, I mean, 
I mean, like we always say, like one of the things we talk about, we talk about voting, and then we talk about, you know, the importance of the Supreme Court. But here, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, when you 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 ticked off one right after another that really impacted our lives. But you know, that education piece for members mm-hmm. of the LGBT community is like we don't get. What was your? Did you yeah. have a, a great audience? Uh, and and how many of them went like, hmm, I didn't know that, you know, or or were they excited by what they heard, not not excited, motivated by what they said to mm-hmm. ask more questions and learn? I think for this audience, because some of them were older, some of them may have remembered these cases in their periphery. I mean, they were pretty, many of them were pretty young when, um, some of these cases were were ruled, so they may have some vague recollection. But I think what it did for this audience, and I think more broadly um, for folks who weren't part of this audience, is really this idea that elections have consequences. <laughs> and, um, mm-hmm. you know, we are in one of those moments where we have a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and it is really, really, really crucial that we get the right person in office uh, to make sure that uh, these these rights that we've worked so hard to gain and have recognized are continued and not taken away, and that the uh, issues that we are still working on are giving, given the, the audience and the uh, when we need to not just expand our rights, but uh, really come closer to being full citizens of the United States and treat it that way. And not just for us well, you know, as LGBT folks, but, you know, across mm-hmm. the board for other folks as well. Well, you know, that was one of the things that we were talking about earlier is like, and how sometimes these decisions are close. I mean, there are some things that, that haven't been addressed because we don't have, you know, nine members. We only Right now we have mm-hmm. eight. The one that we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier on the abortion, it was 5-3. Okay, but when you look at not only is the one seat that's open, when you look at we have some pretty senior members. It is a position for mm-hmm. life, but you can retire for it. And we've got some, some pretty senior members. I'm telling you, you know, I'm ready to go and give – Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a kidney if she needs it, you know, to keep her on there. I but, know, you know, right? A, uh-huh. And so as you see people who are going like, and, and there's also that procedure that clearly the president nominates, but then they're not even getting the hearing, and that can happen one way or the other, and they can't go. So, I mean, it's, so it's like not only do we want the right person in the White House, but then down the way so the right candidate the right nominees get in there because this has implications. Like you were talking about rulings that happened in the 60s that affect us here. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so. Yeah, I think the other lesson, too, is that um, the rest of the, the ballot matters, too, because, uh, you know, these, these um, cases made their way up to the Supreme Court based on uh, or or, or these cases that made their way up were originated, um, the laws that were being looked at were originated at the local level. So we have to remember, too, that 
not only is it important to vote for the president, you also need to uh, cast the vote for your um, senator, representative, state legislature, city council, dog catcher, all of it, because uh, every mm-hmm. single office is, is crucial. And, you know, and there's also that pipeline of judges. You know, they just don't like yes. to show up. You know, I guess there are some people who have a law degree and they get appointed, but um, often that they start in a lower court and then they go mm-hmm. up, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it, it's interesting, you know, because we do have this process, okay? And, you know, and you hear people say, oh, the process is broken and, you know, we have to go another way. But change takes time. So mm-hmm. yeah, we, do have, we do have this process that we have to work with and then try to even stack the debt to make it move so that we can make these changes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so, so I know that um, is this part of what, what judgment in June, is this part of what mm-hmm. their conversations I mean, I mean, as a con- the ideal about the conversations is to start people to sort of like understand the process and understand how they can impact it with their vote and with their, you know, lifting up certain candidates who are the right ones, even if it means like sometimes you got to give some money to support them. But, you know, <laughs> is, is that part of the I, – I mean, really, you know, I mean, sometimes yeah. you have to find ways to encourage people to run, to nominate them, to – Campaign for the is that part of what your hope is from you know like break it down and say look this is what it's about. Mm-hmm. For this particular program, the focus is more on um, education, um, mm-hmm. but you know because some of the folks in the room were uh, at activists, you know the conversation definitely went there. Um, to the more political and social justice movement realm um, to help to further, you know, help people understand that uh, you do have to participate in the process in some way uh, to make sure that the changes that are needed to be made are made. Um, so that was definitely a part of it. And the the, the Legacy Walk is just a great tool for kind of opening the conversation to these broader issues. You know, like the saying goes, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So a lot of the issues Mm -hmm. that we are dealing with today um, have been dealt with for many years, and there are folks throughout history who have been champions of that, as as well as, um, you know, folks who have uh, kind of really put their lives on the line to help us get as far as we've gotten and so just the act of um, lifting up this history of folks in the LGBT community, folks who people didn't even know were LGBT who have been a part Uh of the um, you know history of the world actually um, that act alone is is pretty revolutionary in itself Um, because you know LGBT history is not taught in uh, in in our middle school or high school curriculum at all, uh, and if you're in college, you kind of have to go out of your way to get that that history. So we have it in, in Chicago. We have it right here on the street. <laughs> so 
mm-hmm. with these plaques you see, uh, that are part of legacy mm-hmm. walls. Mm-hmm. You know, do you see, you know, one of the things that, that stuck out, you know, at Creating Change, which is there in Chicago, was that you had mm-hmm. some young activists and some older activists, and, and there was some, some time when some of them clashed, and that's what you were mm-hmm. hearing. The young ones didn't didn't mm-hmm. know that they they were talking about what they were looking for, and the older ones are saying like, "You don't know the history. You don't know what what we yeah. what we went through." Mm-hmm. The legacy walk, mm-hmm. pulling people together across generations. Is it yeah. working? Do you feel and, and what and and are, are people aware of it? And do they you know are they as our community both black, white, brown. Anybody mm-hmm. who's gay, you know, are, are we coming mm-hmm. to to that point? Are we, you know, taking advantage of this really historical tool? Mm-hmm. Um, not as much as we should. And, you know, one mm-hmm. of the challenges is like with any other organization, for many years the Legacy Walk was uh, had one staff person. And like most uh-huh. of our organizations do, um, so getting the word out is always a challenge. But I will say that the um, as the as there's more media attention, as there's more moves to add uh, LGBT history to curricula across the country, and as more and more schools are getting connected to the Legacy Walk, and even just going to the website because. Everything that's on the street and more is on the website for the the Legacy Project, uh, legacyproject.org. So there are opportunities for people to get to know this history, even if they can't come to Chicago and and see the plaques or on in a place where the the mobile exhibit, the Legacy Wall, is. Uh, there are ways for people to engage, but we have a lot of work to do in terms of. Uh, folks really understanding that there is a rich, rich uh, LGBT history in the world and that many people who have been uh, very prominent and very successful in their careers and these touchstones in history um, in some cases are uh, LGBT. I mean, they wouldn't have used that label necessarily way back in the day, um, but they were saying gender-loving, in some cases bisexual, transgender, even going back centuries. Uh, Every time I look at the legacy wall or the legacy walk, I learn something new um, about someone who's contributed to history and (laughs) turns out to be LGBT. So, you know, part of loving yourself is knowing your history, and um, we have a lot of uh, loving to do. <laughs> well, okay. Now, one of the things, and it and it's really interesting. Like you know, we continue to have this this gap between the LGBT community, the white LGBT community, the communities of color, and where many mm-hmm. people think that when they think of LGBT history, they don't see people of color, they don't see black people, and even some black mm-hmm. people, you know, they know they know someone mm-hmm. who's gay, but when they think of the issue, and I've heard some, you know, and I know, and I don't totally disagree with many black LGBT people who will say marriage wasn't my issue. You know, mm-hmm. marriage wasn't my issue, but okay, I'm happy to be able to get married, but marriage wasn't my issue. I still walk in there 
And when I walk in to get a job, okay, I've got that strike already because I'm a black person. And then I'm mm-hmm. going to be gay too, you know, so I also, how do do this history through knowing about mm-hmm. all of these things, you know, the, the Supreme mm-hmm. Court decisions and how it impacts us? I know people who would say, um, I don't care about the abortion uh, decision. It doesn't affect gay people. Yes, it does. You know, so yeah. how do we do things like the Legacy Walk and through programs like that help also pull all the community together and to say that, you know, our part, you know, that, yes, the black, the brown, uh, the API, you know, all of that is part of it. It's just not it. gay history isn't just white gay history. Right. Yeah, and to the credit of the Legacy Project, it is a very diverse um, set of plaques and information on the website. Um, But I think to your point of, you know, how do we do this, we always have to be very intentional about the spaces that we're creating. And um, to me, if you're going to talk about history, the more intergenerational you are, the better. Um, And... And we have to make this history part of everything we do, right? So if we're talking about uh-huh. uh, social justice, if we're talking about elections, if we're talking about um, schools or art or whatever, we need to bring in some historical component that talks about the history of all LGBT um, people who are, are a part of that that sector and and realize that we're also making history every day. So history isn't just isn't just about the past. Um, uh-huh. it's, we're doing this when when the folks who are whose cases we talked about uh, this evening were going through their lives and wound up at the Supreme Court. They, I mean, that's not how they started their day. I'm sure thinking uh-huh. on their lives, thinking, oh, one day I'm going to have a case before the Supreme Court. They were just living, right? And, um, uh-huh. you know, occasionally some folks have these moments where they become the, the a touchstone in history, but that could be any of us. And um, so, you know, it's, it's about being active. It's about connecting with people who don't look like you. It's about the larger LGBT com- community recognizing the diversity in the LGBT community, and I think as our movement grows and evolves, it's also about understanding that we can't do everything in an LGBT silo. There are, because Mm -hmm. we are diverse people with many, many issues and identities all at once, we also have to think about all the other movements that are going on and, and connect to them because, you know, you mentioned the uh, abortion case. This is a uh, reproductive rights case. It's, it's a privacy case. And one of the one of the interesting points that came out in, as we were discussing some of these cases is, you know, it, there are broader implications. So, like the the the, the sodomy um, case was about privacy, and uh, it was about uh, uh, what it, one of the panelists says it was about sex that is not about procreation, and mm-hmm. so that's helped get 
it was a stepping stone to marriage, but it was also a stepping stone to reproductive rights. It was a stepping stone to Roe v. Wade. It was a, a stepping stone to women being allowed to um, use contraceptives and having contraceptives mailed uh, in the U.S. post through the U.S. Postal Service. So it wasn't just sodomy, you know. So these these things are all connected. And um, that's something that we definitely have to realize in, in our daily lives and also definitely as activists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because I think it was interesting because on Sunday I was at something that dealt with, you know, celebrating Obergefell, and, like, they were like, and it was like, think out of a group of, say, 75 people who were at this one thing, there were two African Americans. And when I talked to someone the next day about it, they were going like, well, you know, that didn't really mean, you know, marriage don't matter to me, but it's like a bigger, you know, mm-hmm. yes, it's about getting married, but, okay, there are those things that marriage equality can lead to this, to this, to this, to this, and it does impact you, even though, yes, your concern right now is about more leaning towards an, uh, employment non-discrimination, but mm-hmm. and if your workplace acknowledges your relationship and they start to say that, yes, you are entitled to to these benefits, it leads into, you know, as that becomes the business norm. You know, so it does affect that. But it it, it, it is amazing to me that often you still see those, those gaps, like it's like that we aren't really connected and when we should be, you know. And I think there it's is because intersection of Mm-hmm. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And I, I think part of the reason people don't see that connection is because a lot of times when we talk about these cases or, you know, you name it, we talk about it in such a narrow way that it seems to only connect to a small group of people. But one of the other effects of the the, the marriage rulings was what what turned the case and the and and the critical piece was that it meant that legally LGBT people would be treated as equal as whole human beings. Protections weren't always there for us to be seen as whole human beings in the in the legal aspect. So with just the language even in the majority majority decision, it can open the case for protections against employment discrimination, right? Because most Mm -hmm. people don't know this, but there's no federal law saying that you cannot Mm -hmm. be fired because you're LGBT (laughs) right now. Now, Mm -hmm. you know, folks are working on the Equality Act, but um, that's just not um, fully protected right now. But we have these cases that lead to precedent. So, you know, it's it's tiny steps along the way sometimes with these uh these court cases that can lead to bigger wins that may not seem like they're part of the same category even of of the particular court case you're looking at at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is just 
this election, I mean, you know, and, and you know, and, and it's important that this election, and, and sometimes I say things you really have to get bad before you open your eyes and you sort of see it. I mean, you know, we have to be on this the brink of Armageddon here to really sort of start to think about, you know. So, you know, it's like, whoa, you know, and I, and I do hope it makes people come out and start to do it um, and, to, and to think about it and to grapple with things. Um, Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna ask you a couple of, about a couple other things. One of the things that really impressed me, which shows the whole intersectionality of it, during when they held the floor, and what was his name, Gutierrez, who's from Chicago, a uh, representative, uh-huh. congressman. Okay, and when he got up there, he really like to me like made the circle circle whole when he talked about you know being of Puerto Rican ancestry. He sort of touched on the immigration thing. And then he talked uh-huh. also about when he got there, how he had to grapple with his own biases and bigotry, his religion, yeah. mm-hmm. when it came up about a human rights ordinance and what moved him and where he got to. And then he was really able to talk about equal rights on a bigger thing mm-hmm hit on gun control, and then take it back to the people who had died at Pulse, that not only were they gay who died and the gay rights, but then also he took it back to being from Puerto Rican, and it's a small place, and he was connected, and we're all connected. You know, yes. and it, it's sort of sad that we have to have 49 people be massacred to have that platform where he could come up and say that, you know, and thank God for technology that it was able to be right. on C-SPAN. Yeah, yeah. You know? I mean, and if ever, you That's know, what I say, we're all about, connected. Mm-hmm. And all of these, these things that we're talking about, the Supreme Court decisions, the things that we're talking about, there are ways that, we are connected. You know, you can you can make that circle and go all the way around there. So I know you do lots yes. of things, okay? And <laughs> I know that this that I know that this year you're probably hopping, you know, like to try to do what you're doing, but also to push things uh, up politically. You know, because mm-hmm. whether we want to say that we're political or not, we are. We are. What do you say? <laughs> Yeah, we are. We really are. When you go out, and I know that you talk to diverse groups, you talk to all generations, all and when you're talking about that, without saying, are you talking more about trying to educate and make people aware so that they get involved, or and just saying get out there and vote, or you know, as you know, what what is your message? Because it's like you want to educate because you want it to go on beyond November, but you know right. you want it to. How, how what what are you what are you doing? What are you what are you what are you hitting up against? Well, I would say it's multi pronged, and um, what I find is that people want to find ways to be involved, and uh, sometimes you have to. Um, work with them to figure out what way is going to work for them. Um, voting, of course, is one is one piece of it, but I always tell people it's not just about elections. You have to also uh, 
hold whoever you vote for and whoever is in office, frankly, accountable. Uh, so your work is never really done. Um, I'm always looking for ways to connect people to um, to action that leads to um, social change, policy change, um, but it might be a tiny step for them. You know, we had a uh, an action or a campaign going on to update our human rights ordinance to um, um, take out language that required that transgender people show an ID to use the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, and the irony was that when we actually had gender identity in our city ordinance in 2002, but then this wacky language was included um, because that's what it took to to get gender identity uh, passed uh, in the ordinance. Um, and, and that allowed people to write a letter or call their alderman or share the Facebook post. So um, they were doing something. Um, I think there's a lot of messaging out there already about the importance of this election. And I think that, you know, rightly so, it's uh, focused on a, a, a the highest office, the president. But I tell people all the time, you have to you have to be locally active, and you have to be aware of who your your uh, local legislators are as well, because that's who impacts your day to day life the most. And I know a lot of people uh, are not feeling the vote. It's just too ambiguous a thing for them, and they're not happy with the choices that are available. Um, And I get that, but there are other ways to participate. And so my message is is just that. There are many ways to, to participate in the process and to also make the changes that you want to see made. I know. Like I said, I think that you know it's a it's a time of uh, you know I think say crisis can be a time of terrific opportunity, and I think that a lot of of uh, the change and and the motivation you see in if if you stay involved in the process, revolution doesn't happen overnight. You know, it, you that's know, right. It's not that's a, right. In, in, revolution doesn't happen overnight, and those of us like you and I who who have been doing this for a while, it doesn't happen happen overnight but it doesn't happen if you don't have a sustained effort. And, you know, right. so that that has been what we've been talking about. We've been fortunate to have you and other people who help spread the word, you know, like spread the light, spread the education, that there's more to it than just, you know, what's happening at the top, which is important, but you have to look at, at, the, at more of it. Well, Kim, I mm-hmm. know you've had a long day. I'm not going to keep you uh, real long. I'm going to be away um, in July, and I hope to catch Excellent. up with you and talk more. Um, okay. You know, you are a warrior. I appreciate you because I know, you know, um, I know what it's like. You know, when you're in there all the time and sometimes it's like, okay, I just got to go out there and do just one more thing, and then afterward it feels good. But, you know, but some days it's kind of hard. And I appreciate you and the effort that you do and for you staying on the front line all these years. So my sister, go home, Aww. get some rest, get some good food, 
If you want to have if you want to have a drink, have one on me. <laughs> I will definitely be doing that. <laughs> okay, and I do appreciate you jumping in at the last moment, and that's one of the things that I say is like you know, there are some really great people out there who have a lot of information and are willing to share it. And you've done that, you know, we had someone who was coming in and it was, and it was just a matter of a phone call. I mean, just a matter of a message, you know. person didn't show up. I need you to talk about this. And you were right there. And that also means that because we as a community need to know that not just for can we talk to you, but if you look to your right, you look to your left, there's somebody who's ready to step up, and you might not be able to do it on your own. They might not, but together we can all take a step forward. So, Kim, thank you again. You, you are more than night. welcome. And like I said, uh, anytime you want me on, I'm there. Okay. All right. Well, thank you again, and you have a good night, okay? All right. You too. Okay. And, folks, for that, we're going to say good night. Um, uh, Terry will be back. Hopefully, like I said, if you watch our page, I know that many of you know Imani, and you know, and you probably care about her, want to know, oh, is she okay? Like I said, she's getting better. She's in ICU, but she said her goal was to be in a regular room tomorrow morning. Um, She will be back with us. And please tune in every Wednesday as we are bringing you more issues and history and knowledge that affects our community, and we'll be talking about it for real. So on behalf of Terry Boy, who has her own special things going on, and I'm going to let her share it with you when she's ready, and myself, thank you. Until next week, we'll talk to you on Can We Talk For Real. Good night, folks.